I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you actually start at the board level thinking about why do certain things not quite work? Why are we losing market share? Why are we not growing as fast as we can? I mean, once you actually get into the engine room, you open the door. Very often you find data-related topics, modeling-related topics, infrastructure process topics really at the heart of what's not working. And I think this is what drove the firm really to bring colleagues like myself and a lot others on board, but also to bring on board entities like Risk Dynamics, really specialists on risk model development, risk model validation, but also entities like Quantum Black and others really focusing on data science and other engineering topics. I imagine many students are like this, but late into my final year of university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. And I wasn't going to be picky. I just wanted that first job. So I sent my CV to every company in UCT's graduate recruitment handbook. There were maybe 30 of them with at least a tenuous link to my degree, from which I got three interviews. There was the investment bank that had asked for a 100-word summary instead of the boring old resume. For them, I bought a coconut, emptied it, and closed it back with a little bit of that silver chain that you get on the plug for your kitchen holding in a few autobiographical notes. I called it Brendan in a nutshell. And according to people who ended up working there, it was still being spoken about years later, which gives us a sense of how much I must have blown that first interview because I wasn't called back for a second one. My next stop was with McKinsey and Company. I was nervous going in because, well, because it was McKinsey and Company and they've always been hard to get into. Plus, I'd had to fly up to Johannesburg on my first adult trip alone. I was even more shaken when the first question was about why my lowest grades were in maths. Now, I've actually always been pretty good at maths, and I'd got a B, so arguably this was more of a problem with their expectations than with my delivery, but I did end up getting a wonderful job with Capital One. All's well that ends well, I suppose. And in the two decades that followed that fateful fork in the career road, I never bumped into McKinsey and Company in any credit risk capacity. To me, they were always firmly in the business strategy camp, representing some alternative future that another me had taken, never to be seen again. Except in the last few years, I've started to see some articles coming out from McKinsey, suggesting I may have been wrong. Articles with quotes like, banks need to implement more automated credit decisioning models that can tap new data sources, understand customer behaviors more precisely, open up new segments, and react faster to changes in the business environment. And, since there is no universal solution to credit lending models, banks and lenders must identify and design the lending process to align with their aspirations and business objectives. That sounds a lot like what we talk about on this show. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange.
Frank Gerard, CTO for Risk Practice at McKinsey & Company and co-author of the article, How Banks Can Reimagine Lending to Small and Medium-Sized Enterprises, which we'll jump into later. Welcome to the show. But for now, let's start with more of an introduction. I see you were a banker, like many of my audience, before you became a consultant. So let's start there. What was your pre-McKinsey experience? Good being here. Thanks for the invite. No, look, I mean, before McKinsey, I mean, I was for 13 years on, on the trading floors, Barclays Capital, Credit Suisse, Unicredit, half the time in risk roles, half the time in business roles. Financial econometrics was originally an academic career track. And I've really been following the combination of working on the business side as on the trading floor and working in econometrics statistics really over the last 25 years or so. That's really what makes me get up in the morning. And what's fun is really working on models, to be honest. What made your decision to move from working for one client, as it were, to working in a a world where you've got multiple clients and, and you're consulting? I think it probably started with my last big project at the last bank I worked for, where they developed a large counterparty credit risk framework. And after being finished with that, the idea was to run the machine on a day-by-day basis. And to be honest, that's not really me. So when at the time McKinsey came around looking for a colleague to lead some of the work in advanced analytics and the risk practice, I was actually really fascinated by that. I mean, I was a bit surprised. At the time, eight years ago, I wasn't aware of the analytics work actually McKinsey did. I only knew it for, for the strategy work. But after having talked to the colleagues there, it really sounded like a great opportunity to do at scale. What, what I'm really interested in is really working with clients on modeling risks. Yeah, I actually, when I left university, my first degree, I actually interviewed with McKinsey unsuccessfully. But instead, then I joined Capital One and got into credit analytics. And I'd always seen that as sort of a fork in my career that had I got an offer from McKinsey, I would have done some strategy stuff, mergers, acquisitions, organizational redesigns, that sort of thing. But instead, I went into risk analytics. And for the first 15 years of my career or so, I never saw those paths converging. I didn't bump into McKinsey in projects. But yeah, more recently, that's what I've started to see some of those articles of yours and your teams coming out, some data visualizations in this space. Was that a change intentionally expanding into new arenas? Or was I and were you simply unaware of work they'd been doing in the background already? Just from what I observed and from how I see it is that there was really a big push over the last 10 years, really to also work in the space of advanced analytics and actually do that, I would say, in conjunction with the McKinsey profile and the McKinsey depth around strategy consultancy. Right? I mean, this is not just doing data science, but actually looking to bring together and and harness really advanced analytics, modern methodology to really bring forward business strategy on that side. And that is something, you know, specifically on the credit risk side, which I'm seeing more and more, where if you actually start at a board level thinking about why do certain things not quite work? Why, Why are we losing market share? Why are we not growing as fast as we can? I mean, once you actually get into the engine room, you open the door. Very often you find data-related topics, modeling-related topics, infrastructure process topics really at the heart of what's not working. And I think this is what drove the firm really to bring colleagues like myself and a lot others on board, but also to bring on board entities like Risk Dynamics, really specialists. I specifically work for on risk model development, risk model validation, but also entities like Quantum Black and others really focusing on data science and other engineering topics. 
What is risk dynamics and I guess how do you fit into that broader ecosystem that's been built? The risk dynamics got bought by the firm six years ago, I believe. At the time was a group of roughly 30 colleagues. Over the years, we've grown that to well over 200 now doing work on risk model development and risk model validation. So if you think, for instance, about credit underwriting is kind of a typical case, think about the role models can take in credit risk underwriting to actually create, on the one hand, a really resilient risk management approach, but on the other hand, also a business growth, which even works across really phases like like, like COVID, for instance, or the, the, the recent high inflation period we, we moved into on that side, right? I mean, models really sit very much at the heart of that. And this is kind of a typical area we work on. Credit risk, for instance, but also if you think about topics around customer assistance, really working on what happens if, let's say, a loan did, did not quite work out. Customers need assistance on that side. Topics around early warning system. I mean, if I think about now casting and thinking about alternative scenarios, but also once you move into let's say, working with non-financial institutions, working on financial risk topics like understanding the financial implications of the supply chain on the viability of the entity as a whole, modeling these sort of scenarios. I mean, that's all typical work. And also, if you leave the financial risk area and go into non-financial risk, we're talking about topics like KYC, anti-money laundering, also heavily, let's say, quantified topics nowadays, where very often the approach on the modeling side is also super helpful, really, to create, on the one hand, a good customer experience, but on the other hand, also making sure that the bottom line in terms of a safe KYC process and robust anti-money laundering is actually met on that side. So you really see the modeling approaches throughout, but we do focus in risk dynamics, as the name says, really on everything which is risk related, including model validation also, which if you think about really the reliability of models, especially in phases like we're seeing them at the moment, right? I mean, over the last three years, I mean, originally I would have said COVID is a structural break. Okay, fine. One, two years afterwards, you have the next structural break and then immediately the next structural break. So we, we seem to be going from, from one break to the next. So that's almost yeah, yeah. normal on that. And that's in a way what, what, we, what we work on. To see the likes of McKinsey working in the strategy. This is how it fits in the business. I think it's really good news for everyone in the industry because it means that you're not just sitting in a dark room in the corner. This now really is being discussed by the business as a business issue. The boardroom has actually discovered the importance of model quality and even more importantly, of, of data quality on, on that side. And that is something which is a big change. And I, I think that is driving a lot of the attention you're, you're observing on our end, but also of really other players in the market. I mean, data and analytics are, are really central to what we would consider edge in the market on, on that end. If you think about time to market and the ability to develop models quickly, I mean, that that is turning into a strategic capacity. I mean, really data and models have come out from this kind of dark corner or from the back rooms and, and really take a take a prominent role in, in the boardroom nowadays. If we turn our attention to that article that I mentioned earlier, you start that piece by saying, if banks reimagine and modernize their business lending processes, they can take advantage of new opportunities with SMEs and capture more of the forecasted growth. It's a simple but powerful introduction to the piece. Why 
Did you look at SME lending in particular? It's a good question. Actually, it's what we've seen with our clients happen is that for very established players, we really see eroding market shares of some of the established lenders there. We see growth sometimes lagging behind ambitions. And we actually find that some of our clients are really looking at SME lending still as something which is part of the wholesale business and in a way are applying either parts or entirely in some cases uh, the processes which are really designed to lend let's say three figure sums to large corporates right i mean these these have their their rights and and their justification if if you do this but from our perspective sme lending is really more let's call it a mass lending business you, you really need to think big on that side it's not so much driven by papers getting to the credit committee it's really more driven by models and, and data actually helping you to take decisions in a repeatable, in a standardized way on, on that side. Then again, on the other extreme, we see some of our clients really running the SME businesses out of retail, which again ignores an important part here uh, that actually SMEs require some special attention. I mean, it, there is not one generic SME, right? I mean, if you think about shop retailers, tradesmen, doctors, or, or have e-commerce merchants, right? I mean, all of these really need to have specific services, but also a specific way to navigate the application process, which is very different. If you think about a doctor applying for a loan, and if you think about, let's say, an e-commerce merchant applying for a loan, you will find they have very different expectations. And you really want to be able to mirror those expectations in your processes. And if it's in the processes, it also needs to be in the models. And you have to think about, well, what data actually allows me to do that? So there's, there's a whole chain of topics around this. And that's really what, what drove us to, to really think about SME more in depth on, on that end. Growth is one of those words in, you'll see in any number of headlines. But you really are talking about significant differences in growth. So I mean, you talk about the example in your article of the SME lending bank that offers instant decisions in a fully digital format they're growing at double the rate of the segment as a whole. So this is not maybe 10% faster than your peers, doubling the growth of the segments you're in. It really does show that there's significant gains to be had here and I guess underlines the scale of the impact that can be made in the space. I fully agree with you on, on that side. I mean, growth is, is very significant. If you put yourself into the shoes of, let's say, an e-commerce merchant, and if you think about how that person typically would run or how that customer typically runs their business, they're used to actually working on the screen, working on the computer. If you actually ask them for an in-paper trail of their last financial five years on, on that side, right? I mean, first of all, they might not have five years of, of track record on that side, right? I mean, they might not have existed three, four years ago. And also, it's it's very disruptive for the way they actually organize themselves, right? I mean, it's just not the way they operate. Does that mean you want to economize on your risk-taking, or would you take more risk on that side? No, it's not what we're saying. And it's interesting you mentioned big data earlier. I think Andrew, and one of the proponents of machine learning, I mean, great, great educator in that space, said, well, we need to move a little bit from big data to great data. And I think that's also the case in, in this context, where if you actually put yourself into the shoes of a specific market segment, take that proverbial e-commerce merchant, right? And you think about what's actually the great data, which is helpful to characterize, to pinpoint the risk of, of that specific merchant versus versus his peers on, on that side, right? I mean, then in, in a way, we're really heading in the right direction there because a risk modeler were then actually enabling the business to offer a product and to offer a customer experience 
which is actually relevant to the individual groups. The corollary to that, of course, is that we need to think about market segments, and we actually have probably more models and really a higher importance on fast model development than we had in the past on, on that end. You published the article in May of this year. At that point already, we were seeing the emergence of the situation where now we, we had Russia had invaded Ukraine, we were seeing inflation rising. But I think it's fair to say that it's a bit more gloomy now when we're recording at the end of September than it was a few months ago. Do you think that the sort of environment of, of high costs, high interest rate, persistent uncertainty, do you think that makes the push to digital more important? Or do you think some some lenders are going to step back and say, well, the balance of power has shifted towards me. I can erect some some walls up and the borrower is going to jump over them. There's going to be less competition. I'm, I'm, I'm more nervous of the market maybe. Or do you think, no, 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 we must still focus on making these changes and you know, modernizing our lending processes? As a good econometrics person, let, let me give you an observation on this. Since uh, I would say the last six, six months, we've actually seen a massive step up, not so much on the collection side, but actually on the credit underwriting side. I mean, the number of requests we're getting from clients to do this sort of deep analysis, especially in the SME space, but also in the retail space of their processes of their models of the analytics surrounding it to to make sure that it's it's really walking a fine line here i mean on the one hand we've seen in covid that just unfortunately slamming on the brakes is totally the wrong answer but because what we've seen after the covid lockdown it was actually a significant number of smes really growing very quickly just think e-commerce, keep keep coming back to the example, but it's by no means the only example. But we've seen other sectors or subsectors in, in the SME space actually really struggle. Think restaurants, think hotels, think, think other tourism related. It, it's really that sort of understanding, this ability to really triage and, and look at the market in an up-to-date way, not just using the data of the last five years, but actually bringing in current information, being able to bring in, for instance, transaction data. And if we're able to bring in this reliable view on the world, then growth is actually still there and very important. But I would strongly recommend not just to continue in an undifferentiated way what you've been doing over the last 10 years, characterized by low interest, low inflation, and and so on and so forth. The environment is definitely changing. We see our clients adopt to that very quickly, but adopting to it does not mean slamming on the brakes. It actually means getting more sophisticated in the analytics space, getting more sophisticated in terms of how can I assess the, let's say, affordability of a loan for a specific retail customer, for a specific SME customer on on a case-by-case basis in a scalable fashion. That is really where we see really a lot of interest, a lot of movement over the last six months. It's all on that understanding that the past represents the future. And yeah, for the last decade, that's been true. Now, there have been so many shakeups that we know fundamentally that, well, we've got the last two years on our COVID years, so they're, they're strange in their own right. But also we know the pre-COVID world no longer represents the, the current scenario, or at least you know the, the next few years of the world. So we've got all this confusion that calls into question that really important thing that the, the past will represent the future. But how do we adapt to that? You know, if we're just left on our own, 
everybody's going to run off in different directions, make different assumptions, tweak the model this way, shorten their their data period that way, maybe use some other approaches that are uh, more responsive to volatility. But they might be bumping into each other, they might be doing all sorts and maybe modeling's tightening the taps while acquisition are going into new market spaces. You really do need that business thinking to say, well, why, why are we having to adapt? And to apply some of that old expert thinking on, on top of the models, which I, yeah, I don't think everybody's going to be able to do if they just look at their own aspect of the lending process. So I think, yeah, that's probably where a team like yours is is ideally placed to to help an organization think what changes, what adaptions they need to do, and yet not not overreact, not turn everything off, but just change change how they how they see the world. It's really bringing these these two dimensions together. It's really not being aggressive on the risk taking side, but as a matter of fact, being prudent on the risk taking side. But really thinking about what do we need to do to actually make our processes, on the one hand, more robust? Model maintenance has model risk management has really come to the fore. Over, over the last two to three years, right? I mean, model risk management always used to be this sort of painful thing you had to do after you developed a model, right? I mean, nowadays, model risk management is really al- almost a strategic commodity on that side. And sure, Brendan, as you put it, right? I mean, that at a board level, we really have the confidence that, okay, fine, at the moment we have the right models, but we also have the right processes in place to find out when do we need to renew models? When do we need to reassess models? We actually have principles which work across structural breaks and which allow us to assess and reassess. And that this sort of assessment and reassessment model redevelopment is part of how we actually do business. You know, we talked about modeling and data coming out of the the, the gray zone. We also see model risk management actually coming out out of that very unpleasant, boring area into something which as a board member, you really want to rely on, right? I mean, you want to rely on these people who tell you, yes, these models work and they will stop working under those circumstances. And by the way, that is actually the list of models you need to focus on at the moment to to, to make sure you can continue lending on that side. So th- there's, there's really a very big change in visibility and, and also in focus on, on these areas. Absolutely. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. What are the sorts of things that lenders should be thinking about if they want to check are their processes up to modern standards and more likely, you know, where, where they could be making changes to bring those up to the leading state? I think there is two things which are really essential to get started on this. I mean, the first item is really attention from the boardroom. 
this this is not a small change and it doesn't affect isolated groups right this is not an it problem this is not just a modeling problem this is not something the business can solve on its own this really requires board attention to actually bring together those teams and ensure that there is really cohesion across the organization the second one i would highlight and that's again more a top down point is is really aligning the organization behind a north star one vision where you actually want to get to even if it might take two years, four years to get there, how do you imagine your organization servicing SMEs, retail customers, in a year, two years, three years' time? What's, what's, what's that vision there? And the reason why I'm emphasizing those is because that then actually gives the sort of focus and attention and also positive energy to change things. And very often where we see a need for a change is, is really around topics which feel a bit odd at first, which have to do, let's say, with the end-to-end model development chain, right? I mean, something which is a very odd topic, right? I mean, nobody would have thought five years ago to talk about the mod- end-to-end model development chain at a board level. We're talking at the moment to CROs, to chief lending officers about exactly that, right? I mean, how do you get models developed quickly? Because these models then enable customer-friendly processes, customer-friendly processes really allow to, to drive really the business development on that side. And it's, it's really that sort of pursuing these topics into the engine room, which, which really allow us then to, to dig into this. There's also a couple of other corollaries to that. One of those is also the infrastructure of taking credit decisions. If it takes you six months to actually, or, or even more, to actually get a new decision model into the system, this is not going to work in this environment. You really need to aim for a very quick ability to turn around, to actually develop the models. And once they're developed, to actually release them into production. Once they're released in production, you really want to have a very close eye on the quality of these models and the performance of these models. I mean, that is very much the end-to-end chain on, on that end. And then finally, we talked about it earlier, great data. It's not always big data. In some cases, transaction data it is. But very often, it's really great data. It's really thinking about what gives you a line of sight on the information set you really want to measure. What's the what's your customer group you really want to look into here? And what's the information, the data, which really helps you to understand their position in the peer group? Very often, this is really an exercise which is not fully done and which, which really unlocks some of these other steps on, on that end. In terms of volatility, are there different technologies, are there different approaches that you're seeing now to deal with that sort of quick turnaround? How are you helping customers to be in a position where it is possible to roll out a new scorecard that is safe and monitored within a matter of months? Yeah, you know, we started actually looking at our own processes. I mean, if I think about the, you know, 200 analysts, we've we've gotten risk dynamics. We actually started on, on that ourselves, where in some cases we said, okay, fine, now we, we do the same model now for the third time, fourth time, tenth time. And we felt that we just weren't quick enough on these things, given we've done it already. So, so what we did is we looked around and we found actually that software engineering is, is a great area to think about exactly those topics. Versioning code is trivial, right? Versioning data, uh, that's a different story. Versioning code, data, the documentation, pipelines side by side, being able to reconstruct that over time, try out new things in different versionings, that is a different story. And that is really where we're going at at the moment and where we 
have been working with a number of clients over the last 12 months is really taking these lessons from software engineering. But let's face it, statistics person or econometrics person like me is not a software engineer and I'll never be one, but I can still use some of the tools if they're appropriately set up and appropriately tailored on that end. And that is one of the contributions on on that side is really making sure that we set up this sort of a work environment of a model developer very much so that it feeds into the validation, it feeds into the production release. And when we think about the production release itself, that we maybe get away from this notion that every production release needs a full squad of engineers to actually implement a new model into production, right? I mean, maybe we're doing that in programming all day long, right? I mean, we parameterize things and releasing a new set of parameters is a totally different story compared to releasing a full new model built on that side. For some reason, we still feel very often with these productive releases that we need need to do this full rebuild when all we're intending to do is just a modification for a subsegment or an adjustment, and it just takes too long. That is really very much on the, let's say, engineering side of things or on, on the process side of things on how we do things. The other a very helpful piece of information we've seen over the last two years is really transaction data. I mean, the use of transaction data, I mean, I would argue is is becoming table stakes for, for what we're doing here. It used to be a competitive edge or a, a nice to have framework, but it really turns more and more into a must have for some types of land to really have that sort of visibility either on the transactions or maybe on the sales flow of some of the SMEs as we might get them from from some of the e-commerce platforms or really some up-to-date signal on on the performance side because otherwise we we might be struggling to to actually get this sort of up-to-date confidence that this is working the correct way. I think that's probably the two, three most important ingredients I, I would see at the moment. But maybe just, just one more aspect is also machine learning, which I think has been you know, if I, if I go back five, 10 years, has really been hyped as the solution to a lot of things. It's, it's, it's quite interesting to see that, yes, machine learning methods have certainly a place in the toolbox, but the emphasis is on a place, and it's by no means the most prominent one, especially at the moment. Although what we're also seeing is that for machine learning, there is a, a, a great emphasis nowadays really on topics like addressing potential bias. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've talked in your in your broadcasts before about some, some of the notable examples in, in that case. Explainability of machine learning is quite essential. And, and quite recently in, in research, we're actually seeing this cross-pollination between econometrics, statistics, and machine learning really producing some really amazing methods, which over time will find their way into BAU applications. But we, we see a little bit of a, let's say, a stepping back of the, let's say, conventional machine learning for the benefit of a, okay, fine. So how does this methodology actually help us in a specific context here? And how can it actually contribute to the overall effort rather than being the panacea for everything on that end? Yeah, and I think that's probably also some of that maturation of the people involved in the space that we now do have analytics leaders, business leaders who've worked with machine learning. And we all understand machine learning a bit better from the early days when we were like, well, as we've seen it in the movies, we throw data at it and we do what it tells us to do to this appreciation of, okay, now we've put a better understanding of the the boundaries, what it's good at, what it's not so good at, what the regulator likes, what the regulator doesn't like, what our boards want. And now it's a bit of more of a tool that we can in this business sense sense use which is more powerful overall because it's a bit more under control 
Frank, if anyone listening would like to work with you and the Risk Dynamics team or just read up some of that research that you publish, where is a good place for them to go to learn more? Look at our website, Risk Dynamics. So if you just Google that one, you'll you'll get their Risk Dynamics group. I'm very straightforward. If you want to get in touch in, in person, I mean, obviously my LinkedIn profile is, is there. Otherwise, if you drop me an email, frank underscore Gerhard at mckinsey.com. Great, Frank. Thank you so much. I will put those in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for making the time today. I think really interesting strides happening at a really interesting time for modeling as we really do have to grapple for the first time with how do we embrace all these new technologies and a world where last year is very relevant, but not as relevant as last month. And how do we turn that to the future? So great time to be talking to you and thank you for your input. Thanks for the great discussion. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.